and welcome to episode 63 of the Night Gary podcast. My name's Chris Brown. Today we're talking about the Tune and Dance Cafe. It's a story that was originally based on a short story by uh, Seamus Fraser. Uh, it's uh, a teleplay by Gerald Sanford and Gary Bateson. And uh, directed by a man who only directed one thing in his career, an editor normally for Night Gallery, a man called David Rawlins. And as a story, it is something that is dominated by a song. We don't ask you to believe this particular painting, Death's Head hovering over jukebox, but it does point up the all-inclusive quality of the occult. Phantom specters can be found not only in haunted houses, but in places you'd least expect to find them. Places like this. Our painting is called The Tune in Dan's Cafe. Okay, our story is about Joe and Kelly Bellman. They're a uh, married couple, and their uh, marriage is in a bit of trouble, though. They've, um, there's a breakdown, mainly through like uh, Kelly's kind of general feeling of unease and malaise towards the relationship, and Joe's quite an aggressive sort. And um, they are, well, they went on holiday together to try and rekindle their their love but uh, unfortunately it hasn't really helped and, and there's been a, a stony silence in the car that they're driving back from their vacation um, they stop at a cafe for a break and, uh, and, and order some food but on the jukebox which is turned on it will only ever play the same track one tune um, a country and western song you must have made a mistake putting the records in should the jukebox work? Nothing else has. Well, just try something else. Anybody here? If you leave me tonight, I will cry. Though you say we will soon me again for the hours I've spent here with you and this song is it will not play any other track at all so Joe asks uh, Dan the uh, the cafe owner uh, what's going on why why is the uh, the jukebox so odd and just won't play and seems to be playing other records but the song always comes out the same Dan says that the uh, jukebox has been replaced um, and repaired many times, but oh, it's always and constantly plays the same thing. And he's got a theory behind this. He thinks it's uh, a story about uh, Roy Gleason and his girlfriend Red. Um, they were they they were they went out together and uh, they had a fiery romance. Um, Roy was a good time kind of guy, and it turned to crime to to pay his way. And he'd spent a lot of time out, you know, uh, masterminding these schemes to make cash. Red resented the uh, the fact that she was left alone during all this, and um, found herself another man, and then dobbed in Roy, and kept and uh, took took a uh, reward cash, a thousand dollars reward, and then basically left him to uh, to the to the police. Um, 
that to that point it, it led to to Roy's death at the hands of of, of, of the officers and he was killed uh, Red never turned back and has not been seen since the couple pay their tab and leave and um, in the parking lot they uh, they see a couple one of which was fiery fiery red hair hours I've spent Are like words from a poet's Words like love and truth and goodness. Words like till death. So you can hear the jukebox play, and then finally, it's obvious that this is Red and her, her boyfriend, or uh, partner, and our man Roy had finally got the revenge he so clearly wanted. Um, okay, the story, as it is, isn't great. I mean, it's not particularly special. It's quite uh, a cliche little tale. I mean, you know. Um, a, a, a ghost in a jukebox that seeks revenge is, you know, and then the usual kind of reasons why. I mean, the Roy and, Ray, Re, Roy and Red romance in particular is the kind of thing that you would normally see, you know, it's a, it's a pulp fiction, 1940s kind of tale almost. Also, um, the structure is odd, very odd. The, uh, the Bellman's kind of drift through the tale and I just decipher so the story can be told before Red gets uh, gets attacked by the ghost um, you know it, it, it is also frustrating as well because the payoff is done from an exterior shot and you just hear the song and then screams and not much else um, it, it's a little frustrating that said um there's two real things to talk about with this story. Uh, well, three really. First off, um, Gerald Sanford said he basically saved the script. Now, we've spoken before about Sanford's uh, claims about how much he had to rewrite. Um, I mean, but it is true that the, the script apparently was not considered the strongest at any point. Um, David Rawlins was the editor. It was on an editor of Night Gallery, one of the better editors, and would been given the script to direct as because he, you know, insisted that he did do some directing. In the end, this turned out to be his only directing gig, not only for Night Gallery but ever. Now that's not to say that um, he, you know, not for the quality that he has, more that you know the fate fate conspired against him. But more on that in a second. Sanford says that the script when he originally received it was so threadbare and lacklustre. There was no song, for example, and no um, and no elements to it that were really... Apparently there was there was just a, you know, a demonic song that played on the jukebox and then revenge and not much else. Um, I'm not going to disagree with what Sanford says. I know, I know that it, it, I, I have done in the past. I don't have a copy of the original draft, so I don't know how much it is to compare to. 
However, what I would say is that what he's done is make from what he says to something that's actually close to the original short story, which was uh, originally published in 1967 in a compilation called Lie Ten Nights Awake. Uh, a compilation that also includes, well, it's only not really notable for having Anthony Burgess's A Pair of Gloves in, in truth. Um, so, what the director did, what, well, first off, he, um, what Rawlins did to this script is uh, acknowledge that, well, apparently he wasn't allowed to rewrite it again. He had to just go in with what he had. So what he did was he took the script and, uh, and, and you know, did the work that he needed to do to, to add atmosphere. It's a well-shot story, uh, even though it's quite short at 15 minutes long. There's nice images of inside the jukebox as it picks each individual record. Um, for a TV episode, it's quite cinematic, really. It is quite pretty. Um, he also picks some good actors. The, um, the couple, uh, Joe and Kelly... Uh, played by Pernell Roberts and Susan Oliver and uh, more interestingly uh, Rawlins picked Brooke Mills as his red who uh, it was his wife <laughs> I don't know if he's trying to say too much there about much indeed really but uh, that is the case um, I will say as well that um, this is the reason why Rawlins uh, left Night Gallery. Uh, he wanted to direct. He wasn't allowed to. They wanted him to edit. He was a very good editor. And um, he left. And indeed, this was his only directing gig, which is a shame because he does show a great deal of skill behind the camera. He's, he's obviously not just an editor, but has some talent. But that said, it's not like his career dramatically ended he he went on to to edit uh, Saturday Night Fever for example um, the other noticeable thing is the song obviously um, If You Leave Me Tonight I'll Cry is the name of it it was actually written for Night Gallery um, written by Joe Stanford who did the lyrics and uh, music supervisor Hal Mooney um, apparently Colin Stanford Laird said, you know, why don't you write the first first verse and, and like what he did, so he asked him to write the second and, and he that's how he got involved. And um the track uh well it originally was was meant to be a pop song and then um because of the way it'd been uh recorded, they were able to change it the last minute and make it into the country and western song that we hear. The interesting thing about that is of course the man that they got to sing it. It's performed by Jerry Wallace, who um, was best known at the time for his 1959 song, Primrose Lane. Um, he'd recorded since then in various tracks, but indeed had not um, received as much uh, success. Once the, uh, the track had been released, well, been heard on Night Gallery, there was a huge response, and Universal quickly rushed uh, Wallace back to record it properly and to release it. Wallace wasn't a country singer originally, but this created him as a country and western star. He had a new phase in his career that lasted through a number of a number of years, well, through 
hard, well, a lot of the 70s in truth. In that year, in fact, he gained a nomination for the Country, uh, for the Country Music Association Award as Male Vocalist of the Year. And uh, his song, To Get To You, gained a nomination for Single of the Year. He did, you know, that track, um, the track, I'll, uh, If You Leave Me Tonight, I'll Cry, in actual fact, became number one in the Hot Country Singles chart of that, this of the summer of, 90, of 1972. So, um, it is something that completely changed his career. At a time when not a lot of people were listening to country, it kind of re-sparked a bit of interest. Yes, the hours I've spent here with you Are like words from a poet's pen Words like love and truth and goodness Okay, that is the, uh, that, that's that story covered. Uh, we're back. To, we're over to a new episode next week with uh, Lindemann's Catch, which I'm looking forward to. Uh, it's a bit of a classic. Um, if you want to speak to me, uh, please do. Uh, my uh, Twitter is at orange underscore monkey, or you can drop me an email at chris at the twilight zone network dot com. Um, for all updates and, and stuff like that, and find out what we're doing, the best place to go is actually our webpage, which is www.thetwilightzonenetwork.com. From there, you can have links to our Twitter and also our Facebook, and also leave comments on any of the articles that you can see. Um, so thanks for listening, and take care, and I'll speak to you next week. Goodbye. <laughs>